is Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 34. And if you are shocked by the size of that text, I also was shocked by the size of this text. Uh, But praise God for it. Max had a wonderful plan for it, and it is such a joy of a text to to work through. Uh, Will you read this with me? Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 34. As he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him, saying, My daughter just died, but come and lay your hands on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said, because the girl is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Then news of this spread through the whole area. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, Be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout the whole area. Just as they were going, a demon-possessed man who was, able to speak, who was unable to speak was brought to him. When the demon had been driven out, the man who had been, made, who had been mute spoke, And the crowds were amazed, saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. Amen. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we praise you. Thank you for just this body of believers. Thank you for this church that you have established. And God, I pray that you would sustain and that you would maintain by the providence and the power of your hand. God, I pray for those who are unsaved this morning that your gospel would go forward in their hearts, replacing hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Bring them into your covenant family as you have promised to do with those who repent and confess. God, I pray for those who are believers that they would not be shocked with laziness and idleness in their lives, but they would be stirred in affection for you. That their head, hearts, and hands would be moved towards the throne as we live our lives on earth. And God, I pray for myself this morning as I preach, that I would preach as if it is the last thing that I do on earth, as a dying man to dying people. God, make your gospel clear. Make your Son glorified in this, that through your word we can come to know you more and live holy for you. In your name, amen. This text is uh, one that has quite a few things in it. Um, but uh, the big thing that stands out is this idea of miracles, right? Miracles that are happening. I've got some experience with miracles, and this is what I mean by that. Um, I used to live in Somoto, Nicaragua. Uh, I was a missionary there for a long time. Uh, by a long time, I mean it was like five years. Um, it wasn't like a long time, right? But it was some time. 
Um, I helped train pastors there. We started orphanage. We planted churches. So we did a lot of fun things. Specifically, we planted 10 rural churches. Um, and and these, these churches formed a coalition in the Northwest Territory and a board of pastors and these whole things. But some of the things that they come in contact with in Nicaragua, as you can imagine, in some more Latin American places that have been uh, influenced largely by the Assembly of God movement and the Pentecostal movement um, that have moved southward in the Americas as they deal with a lot of miracles. And I use air quotes very specifically. Um, these, are, these are things that are miraculous at the hands often of the pastors of the church. And they can sometimes lead people astray. So miracles are one of these things that we wrestle with. We wrestle with these things, but they are an important part as we read the Gospels. And I'm sure you've seen in Matthew a very important part of Jesus' ministry on earth. These, these miracles that happen, but they bring, they bring us to the table to ponder the realities of them and what's, what's going on, why are they happening, how are they happening, what do we do with this? Because it doesn't strike us as something that makes sense. It doesn't strike us as something that says, oh, this is a reasonable thing. How do we raise someone from the dead? Newsflash, you can't. Seems like Jesus can. <laughs> These are some very interesting things. They elicit such a response from people even outside the faith, or especially those outside the faith, that look at Christianity and say, you believe in miracles, how can you do that? How close-minded are you to believe in this? Side note, I'm just going to side note already here. Okay, If you've never read the book by G.K. Chesterton called Orthodoxy, I highly recommend that book. Um, it is a wonderful book, and he actually says this. Now, so take this to your non-Christian friends the next time they bring this up. He says, it is not the Christian that is closed-minded, it's the humanist that's closed-minded. How do we say that? Because the humanist will, will look at the Christian and say, you're, you're brainwashed, you're, you're closed-minded, and say, no, I have the liberty to believe in that which is material and immaterial. The humanist, you've closed your mind to that which is only material. We're not the closed-minded ones. We're the ones that say Jesus performed miracles. Praise God. <laughs> we don't question it. But how do we define miracles? How do we understand what the purpose is? For the, for the sake of our text this morning, let's define a miracle this way, according to what we would see in biblical text. It is a work of God imposed onto creation as a testimony and a sign of Christ's rule. A work of God imposed onto creation as a testimony and a sign of Christ's rule. Using this definition, then, we can understand many things in the Bible as miracles. Right? We can, we can do that. In John 2, when Jesus changes water into wine. Miracle. Why? Because it's an imposition of God onto creation to a testimony and a sign of Christ's rule. Praise God. When Jesus spits on the ground, he makes mud and he heals blind men. Miracle. Why? Because it's a work of God imposed onto creation as a testimony and a sign of Christ's rule. And here, what we see in this text are four specific miracles. But do we need the Bible to understand that Jesus did miracles? No. 
It was such an important part of his ministry that it's testified by people even outside the biblical writers. For example, there is a man named Josephus who was a Jewish historian. Not a believer, a Jewish historian that wrote this in his book, Antiquities to the Jews. He writes, quote, Jesus was a doer of startling deeds constantly. So a non-Christian historian is writing to Jews that Jesus did miracles all the time. And we see four of them here this morning. But we have to understand the goal of what's going on. We have to understand that as we approach Matthew 9, 18-34, that Jesus is doing something here that leads us into a particular area. And as I'm sure you've seen, that the book of Matthew, the, the Gospel according to Matthew, is arranged in five sermons. The whole book is arranged in five sermons. We've got number one, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. to The mission discourse in Matthew 10 and 11. A sermon on kingdom realities in chapter 13. Instructions for the church in Matthew 18. And then what we call the Olivet Discourse, the name of my church, which is Matthew 23 to 25. These are five homilies that are laid out by Jesus. And everything in between them is action and setting and movement towards these sermons. That means that where we are in chapter 9 this morning is leading into the commissioning or the mission discourse in chapter 10. Which we see, if we, if we look right down at 10.1, summoning the 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every kind of disease and illness. He's sending out the disciples saying, do what I do. How do you know what I do? Matthew 9. So we're moving into the commissioning of the disciples, so we need to know what's going on here. This means that in Matthew 9, we find ourselves in that leading action to that address. And we have four primary miracles. But I've chosen to take this text under three headings this morning. There's four miracles, three headings. That's good preaching. And they're all P's. Okay, so for those of you who like to remember things, they're P's. Number one, the possession of faith. That's verses 18 to 26. The possession of faith. Number two, the profession of faith. Verses 27 to 31. And number three, the progression of faith. The possession, the profession, and the progression of faith. As we move forward here. And as we go through this, we'll see a great testimony of the rule of Jesus. And great implication for our lives as friends of Jesus. So let's, let's begin here. Um, the profession, no, I'm sorry, the possession of faith, number one. Um, in the first section, what we see is a narrative of this official's daughter who has died. Some, some Bibles will read who has fallen asleep. That's a euphemism that we actually see later on when Jesus is saying, um, he says, uh, leave. Why, why do you need to leave? Because the girl is not dead, but asleep. In the Jewish world, they would understand asleep as dead. So he says, the girl's not dead, she's dead. But she's asleep. She's going to wake up. So he's, he's using this kind of play on words here. It would not be difficult 
for Jesus to bring this young girl back to life from afar, would it? It seems like he's done that before. In Mark chapter 7, he heals a woman's daughter from afar, right? We see in Matthew 15, he heals the centurion's servant from another city. And in John 4, the official's son was close to death, but instead of going to him, he says, no, you go back. And he was healed when he got there. It would not be complicated or difficult for Jesus to do a miracle when he's not present, but, but in this instance, in Matthew 9, Jesus gets up from where he is and takes his disciple and goes. Why does he do that? Because of what happens in the middle. What happens in the middle is really significant. Jewish being, or I'm sorry, Matthew being a Jewish writer knew and used commonly Jewish figures of speech. He uses them all the time. And this one is called an inclusio. Okay, think about that like bookends. There's one over here and one over here, and it's bookending something really important that happens in the middle. And what we see, the first scene begins with the official coming to Jesus about his daughter and ends with the resuscitation of his daughter. The bookend is, is drawing attention to what's in the middle. So in that sense, what Matthew is trying to communicate is not actually about the resuscitation of the official's daughter. What he's trying to communicate is the narrative there of the woman who suffers from bleeding for 12 years that's sandwiched right in the middle. So he's making a point by using a narrative on both sides and then drawing attention to the middle. Verses 20 to 22 tells of a, of a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. We don't know exactly what this bleeding is from. It's one of the stories that's communicated most regularly in the four Gospels. The implication here, according to Bible scholars as well as secular scholars looking at this, is that it's some sort of menstrual bleeding. That's the common thought. Some people think that there's a disease that was affecting types of menstrual cycles of some kind. Some people think that it was hemorrhaging that was causing this. We really don't know, and the text doesn't really tell us why she was bleeding. But the other gospel accounts kind of give us implication into what is going on. On, But the reality is, she was suffering from bleeding for a very long time. A very long time. But she hears of Jesus coming. And despite there being a crowd, she presses her way through and touches Jesus' robe. She does this because she believes if she could just get to him, that she'd be healed. If I could just get to Jesus. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, she's probably at the end of her rope. She's tried for many years. This is what Mark tells us. She tried for many years to go to doctor after doctor after doctor to no avail. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, she's probably just at the end of her rope. She's tried for years and no one can heal. It's the only remaining option. And to that, you know what I would say? Amen. Is that not how it works for most of us? That we live the way that we want to live for years and years and years. And finally, when we're at the bottom, when we're at the end of the rope, you say, Jesus, you're my only option. And you know what he does? He turns around and says, by your faith, you're healed. Praise God. We turn around and we say, Jesus, save me, just like this woman who was bleeding. And without fail, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus turns and has great compassion 
on that. That's what it says. Have courage, daughter. Not only does he turn and speak and not freak out, right? According to the Mosaic Law in Leviticus, this is significant, right? This woman would be considered ceremonially unclean for 12 years. And anything she touched would be ceremonially unclean. She would be barred from worship in the synagogue because she was unclean. So she's living this reality in her life, bleeding for 12 years, saying, I am a social outcast and I am a worshiping outcast if I could only get to Jesus. And what happens? She touches him. What happens to Jesus? He becomes unclean. Ceremonially. This is great. Praise God for this scene in the Gospel. Let me break it down to you this way. She's unclean. He's perfectly clean. She touches him. He becomes unclean. She becomes clean. This is the Gospel. (laughs) This is the whole thing. We are dead in our trespasses in sin, Ephesians says. We are unclean. But this gift of faith that is given to the Lord's people causes our hearts to reach towards Him and lay hold of Him for the condition of healing. And what does 2 Corinthians 5.21 say? He became sin who was perfectly clean, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Unclean touch the thing that is clean, he becomes unclean so that we may be clean. What a narrative that we have in the Gospel. But how is she healed? You can say Jesus did it. Of course he did. That's what it says. But how? Verse 22. Jesus turns to her, taking on her uncleanliness, and says this, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. It was the possession of faith that moved Jesus' hands for her restoration. It was not her faith in nothing. It was not her faith in herself. It's not even her faith in the Word of God. It's the possession of her faith that Jesus heals and saves. And that's what moved her to her. And I plead with you, friends, this gift of faith from God is a beautiful thing, and I pray that you don't walk out of here this morning without the possession of this faith that saves. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter how close to the end of the rope that you are. Push through all of the other people and you say, if I can just touch it. What a witness to the disciples of this event. Because remember, we're in the inclement action leading up to the first discourse, or the second discourse, the commissioning discourse in chapter 10. So the point of this is to instruct the disciples on their own ministry. What a witness that they had. And how much they learned from Jesus about how to meet people where they are. They were to approach these certain individuals who were the least of the societal outcasts, the people who get weird looks and condemning gazes from all sides. And you know what, friends? So are you. So are you. I am waiting 
sometimes very impatiently. But I am waiting for a generation in the church to raise up people who are not afraid to go to people who no one else will go to. The people that are barred from the synagogue. I am waiting for revival in the church when the man or the woman or the family would see someone with leprosy or a disease or ceremonial uncleanliness and say, I'll touch you. I will be like Jesus and enter into your reality for the sake of Jesus' name. Because that's what Jesus did. And this is the instruction to the disciples. The possession of faith. As we move to the next scene in our passage this morning, we see something more overt than the settled possession of faith that we see in the greeting room. Number two, the profession of faith. As Jesus leaves the home of the official's daughter he raised to life, two blind men approach him for healing. They must have heard he was in the area somewhere, probably because he was a teacher and he was a very famous person. He got up and he's going to go resuscitate some dead girl. So they're probably like, this is a significant thing, let's follow him. Okay? So they must have heard about this, but this is really important. It's significant. What does Romans 10 say? Faith comes by hearing. Right? What happened to Rahab and Joshua? She heard of the works of the God of Israel. Right? This is a very important thing. The two men approach and say, have mercy on us, Jesus. No, that's not what it says. Have mercy on us, Lord. No, that's not what it says. Have mercy on us, teacher. No, that's not what it says. Have mercy on us, son of David. This is the first time that someone other than God publicly identifies Jesus as the Messiah. First time. These blind men putting all the pieces together. They knew the prophets. They're good Jewish boys. They knew the prophets. Right? Isaiah 35 says this, When the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. This is a sign of the messianic age out of the prophet Isaiah. They knew it. And even though their eyes were blind, they were seeing Jesus for who He truly was. He was not just a doer of miraculous things. He was God coming to release the captive. He's the chosen one, the anointed one. He is the Messiah. So when Jesus turns and they say, have mercy on us, son of David, they are professing a reality of Jesus bringing healing and being the only one who was able to show mercy. The other rabbis can't show mercy. What can they do? Teach really well. What can Jesus do? Teach really well and actually have mercy on people as the God that created them. Then Jesus' question which is a bit redundant given that they just professed that he was the Messiah. Do you believe that I can do this? Yes, Lord. A verbal profession of faith. Jesus replied, let it be done according to your faith. Now here, we have to note, according to your faith. Some want to say that this is a quantity of faith. A quantity of faith. This is popular among what we would call the word of faith movement, 
popularly called the prosperity gospel. Or another movement called the New Apostolic Reformation. Think Bethel Church, Hillsong, Elevation Church, Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes. A lot of people that are popular in this movement called the New Apostolic Reformation. And this is what they will say. The thought says this, small faith, small things. Big faith, big things. Want big things to happen? Have more faith. That is not what this is saying. They're going to reinterpret this and they're not going to say, according to your faith, it will be done. They're going to say, according to the amount of your faith. According to the amount of your faith. This revelation of sight is given to these men not because they have great faith, but because they have it and profess it. It is not according to the amount of your faith. Rather, Jesus is saying according to the fact of your faith. Because what does he say later on in the Gospels? As small as a mustard seed can move mountains. It doesn't matter how small your faith is. Some of you this morning may be wrestling. Do I have faith at all? It's a very important question. Maybe you compare yourselves to those who raise their hands when they're singing or pray for three hours every day. Maybe you compare yourselves who always feel happy when they're reading the Bible, who have this ecstatic experience, and you're saying, I wish my faith was as much as theirs. Friends, let me tell you, it does not matter how big your faith is. It's the fact of your faith that saves and redeems. Because small faith in a big God is equal to big faith in an equally big God. And that's what we see here. A profession, a verbal profession. God is a verbal God. The verbal and lifestyle profession of faith is so critical for the ministry of God's mission on earth. And again, he's training his disciples for this. Romans 10.9, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Perhaps you've heard this statement. People love it. It's on bracelets and stuff. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Falsely attributed to Francis of Assisi. I say falsely attributed because he was literally known for preaching the gospel to birds and rocks and all sorts of things. You know, he took very seriously, preached the gospel to all creation. So he would sit there in front of a bunch of rocks and say, let me tell you the gospel. So for us to say he said, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words, it does not make any sense. And I'm going to restate this. It's not preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. It's preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, stay silent. Because the verbal profession of faith is critical to the mission of God in the world. We are to speak the name of Jesus and ask others to speak the name of Jesus. Now this is not, don't hear me say this, this is not asking someone to say a sinner's prayer and then they're saved. This is not going to someone and saying, you know, can you say Jesus is Lord? Amen. Let's go. This is the lifestyle of proclamation. This is the lifestyle of saying, why are good things happening? Let me speak the name of Jesus. This is like saying, when someone breaks into my church building, I'm going to say, praise God for this. Let's pray in the name of Jesus. It's a profession of faith. It's a lifestyle of these things. And the disciples, and you or I, are called to be people of professing faith. We're called to this. We're not here 
to do some sort of platitude or rote thing. Say this and everything will be great. No, we're not saying that. But the reality of the lordship of Jesus should always be on our fingertips and on our lips. And that's what we see with the profession of faith. So speak the reality of Jesus into the spheres of your life. Speak the kingship of Jesus to your friends and family. Speak the name of Jesus as you pray. This is a demonstration to the disciples of Jesus and us as friends of Jesus for the way we are to approach people as we are sent out. Which is what just happens in Matthew 10. But finally, we reach our last heading here. The bleeding woman possessed faith. The two blind men professed faith. And here we see in this last narrative the progression of faith. Again, what we're seeing here is a, is a demonstration of the messianic age out of Isaiah 35. Who caused the eyes of the blind to open, the mouth of the mute to speak, the ears of the deaf to unstop. He will also cast out evil spirits among them. Now here in the Bible, we have all sorts of elements, or ailments rather, um, not because of demon possession, just simply because of the brokenness of sin in the world. When Adam fell into sin in Genesis 3, creation snapped. It wasn't just Adam and Eve. What does it say? Part of the curse in Genesis 3, the ground is cursed. And it will produce thorns and thistles. Creation has consequences for the fall of sin. And what we see in that is sometimes our bodies do not work the way that they're intended to work. So if your body is ailing this morning, it is because of sin in the world that plagues creation. And we see that all throughout the Bible. We see people who are blind because of sin. The man that was born blind, does that mean he's demon-possessed? No. It means he was born blind because sin's in the world. And we know exactly why he was done th that way. What does Jesus say? For this reason he was made blind so that the work of God may be de declared. Right? But throughout the Bible we see these things. Some people, born blind, can't speak for one reason or another, physically lame because of the plague of sin. But not here. The muteness in this man was caused not by sin in the world, but by the possession of a demon of an evil spirit. But take note here very carefully, just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. This man did not possess faith. This man did not profess faith. But his friends did. Verse 32 says he was brought to them. He didn't go willingly. He was brought to Jesus. Now remember where Jesus is at this point. A bit of contextual information for you. Where is he? According to the beginning of chapter 9, he was in his own town. Which is where? Nazareth. The Galilee region. Right? This is, it's, it's actually now in you know, northern Israel. It's always been in northern Israel. But technically in some disputed areas between Palestine and, um, and Israel, which I have the privilege next May of leading a trip to Israel. We're going to be spending time in these areas and, and looking at these things on the ground where they happened. But he's in the north of Israel. Why is that important? For a very primary reason. 
In the Bible and for the Jewish worldview, the idea of north represented evil. The idea of north represented evil. Think of Ezekiel. The Babylonian army is said to be coming from the north, even though Babylon is an eastern territory. In the book of Revelation, the, the Apostle John speaks of this representation of evil as the armies of the north. In the Jewish worldview, northernness represented opposition. So here, what we see all through the gospel accounts is this demon possession and this exorcism Jesus performs primarily takes place in the north of Israel. We don't really see a lot of demon exorcisms happening in Jerusalem. We see it happening in Nazareth and Capernaum and you know, Bethsaida and Caesarea. We have them all over the place, primarily north of the Shvela Valley, which is a representation in Israel of evil. Which is really significant because this is Jesus moving into what would Jewishly be considered spiritually forsaken territory and reclaiming it for the kingdom of God. That's how we should understand demon exorcisms in the ministry of Jesus. Is it a good thing that he's healing people? Yeah, that's a really good thing. When he exercises a demon, whenever he casts out an evil spirit, he's saying, that's mine. It's not yours anymore. It's mine. I am reclaiming this for the kingdom of God. That's a significant thing because this is true spiritual warfare. Is there a spiritual warfare that says, oh, I'm having a really bad day. I feel really spiritually attacked right now. Sure. Sure. Is there spiritual warfare where temptation whispers to your mind and your heart to lead you into some sort of pathway of sin? Sure. But friends, let me tell you this. Demon possession is a picture of true spiritual warfare at its core. Because the prince of the power of the air says, this is my territory. And Jesus says, no, it's not. I'm taking it back. This has been given to me. What is Matthew 28? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, even where the prince of the power of the air thinks he has authority. No, you don't. Think of the book of Joshua. As the army, the people of God are entering into the land of God, the land of Canaan that was given to them. Their job was to do what? Eradicate the inhabitants of the land to redeem it for God. To reclaim. This was not a matter of military prowess. Because the army of Israel was smaller than most of the Canaanite armies. Think of Jericho in particular, right? It doesn't say go and fight Jericho. No, he says go walk around it. It's not about military prowess. It's not about more numbers. It's primarily a matter of loyalty. Whose are you? That's the determining factor. The determining factor in a spiritual battle is not, do I have good tactics? The determining factor in a spiritual war is, who's fighting for me? And who am I fighting for? And what we see here, and in many other places, Jesus drives out evil spirits, is Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army. The one, the second person of the Godhead that Joshua meets 
when he walks out towards Jericho and he's by himself and the commander of the Lord's army says, take off your shoes. This is who we see in Matthew 9. He's entering into enemy-occupied territory and saying, it's mine now. Get out. It's the conquest of territory brought about by the progression of faith. As we come to a close here this morning, I want to encourage you. There are some of you this morning who may have stumbled in, starting your day off bad. The season of your life being fraught with challenges of all kinds. I know. It happens to all of us. We have seasons of our life that are just hard and just bad. But this morning, by the grace of God, as we sing songs, as we pray for and with each other, and as we sit in submission, all of us, to the Word of God, then when we float out of here on clouds of glory in the Gospel, we have a job to do, brothers and sisters. We have a job to do. This job is to go into the dark parts of the world. Maybe some of you here are called to actually go to the dark parts of the world. Praise God. Maybe some of you are called to go to work, which has dark parts of the world around you. To go, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, to play witness and testimony to the rule of Christ in the world, and then by your possession of faith, by your profession of faith, you will see the kingdom-oriented and Christ-glorifying progression of faith in that world. And this was the instruction to the disciples. Immediately following this text, as you'll talk about presumably next week, is the great harvest passage. The harvest is great. The workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into the field. And that's my prayer for you this morning. Based on this passage, the possession of your faith, the progression of your faith, and the profession of your faith, Christ will be exalted in your life. The Gospel of Jesus is a magnificent thing. The work of the cross is a work that not only provides redemption for your sin, it does that. It's what we saw with the bleeding woman. Healing and cleanliness from the person of Jesus. The work of the cross not only provides forgiveness with the profession of messianic rule, as we see with the two blind men. The work of the cross is also a work of victory. Victory over sin and death, and a victory that Jesus decisively won. And a victory that his disciples were trained in, and that you and I are participants in. That our lives be lived to the glory of the one who has pulled us into faith by his word, and into his victory. We pray with me, Father in heaven, we praise you for this time. Thank you for the words of Matthew 9, that we can come to know you, and to see you, and to fear you, and to worship you more fully. God, I pray that you would stir affections. I pray that you would raise people in this room and in this body to be servants to you, holy and devoted and dedicated. God, we praise you for the work of your Son on the cross that we can come to be in the throne room of grace boldly. 
And we praise you that these words of prayers are not rote things that bounce off the ceiling, but are covered with your Son's blood to the ear of the Father. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.